Tuesday afternoon. My name is Adelita Grijalva, and we are having a platica with Adelita. We started these platicas usually on Saturdays um, to talk about issues that we think were important. During the campaign, we talked about it um, during voting and how to um, eliminate obstacles, talk about different issues that voters were concerned about. And now, when we as we started in the District 5 office with Pima County, we're bringing up issues that are coming up in our community as concerns, um, people ask additional questions about or really just seek to understand what the process is. And so this afternoon, which is a Tuesday, I know everyone, it, we normally do Saturdays, but the reason why we're doing Tuesdays is because these three amazing people I've worked with alongside at pop-up sites in, in Pima County. And the pop-ups, they'll talk a lot more about them, but really they're just concentrated, um, concentrated in neighborhoods of areas that um, people have been underrepresented in getting the vaccine. So it's targeted to specific communities. And both Erica, Jess, and Amanda have all, um, I've all asked them what to do and how I can volunteer. And I've been so impressed with the pop-ups and the work that they've been able to do in our communities that I've asked the three of them to join me. This is a work day and they work on the weekends. So we here we are on a Tuesday afternoon because this worked for their schedule and I really just wanted you to be able to hear from them directly about what it is that is going on in our community. So first off, thank you, all three of you for joining me. And I'm gonna ask each of you to just kind of introduce yourselves and say a little about you. And so I'll start with Erica. Hi, good afternoon. First of all, thank you, Supervisor Grijalva for inviting us. It's an honor and a pleasure. And we're happy to be able to share our experience with the community. Um, my name is Erica Smith. I am a senior leader at the Pima County Health Department and um, oversee a lot of programs that focus on equity and disparities within the community. Uh, the name of the division is Community Outreach, Prevention and Education. And that includes our Mitigating COVID in Communities of Color um, grant and work, as well as our racial and ethnic approaches to community health. And how long have you been with the county? Um, I actually have been with the county 27 years going on 28. So I dropped in right after I graduated from um, NAU back in 1993 and I've been here ever since. Nice, thank you. Thank I know, you. doesn't time fly so fast? Yeah, I, yeah. Before this job, the job that I had before at Teen Court, 26 years, I'm like, where did the time go? It, but I do think that when you're committed to what you're doing and you feel it, it you're contributing, it doesn't seem like, it. it I mean, time just does fly. Um, Jess, Jess Celine, could you introduce yourself and, yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are. I am Jess. Um, I'm a health equity program manager at Pima County Health Department. I am focused more on a program right now called Mitigating the Impact of COVID in Communities of Color, which Erica mentioned earlier. And we've been focusing mainly on mobile testing and mobile vaccine. Um, and so, and really trying to provide resources for folks who test positive for COVID to stay in their homes when they need to isolate and be away from others. So that's been the main focus of my job here. And how long have you been with the health department? Not very long. It's been just under six months. Wow. Well, so you signed up in a pandemic. <laughs> I sure did. Yes, I did. So you knew. I was like, this is going to be an uphill regardless. So. Yep. I started just before the, the second or third wave. I Sometimes people call that the third wave right before the holidays hit and we saw all the cases rise. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Amanda Monroe. And Amanda is a D5-er, so she used to work in District 5 with um, Supervisor Elias and Supervisor Viegas. And we and what I've heard a lot, many times, it's like, once you're a D5-er, you're always a D5-er. So Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, my name is Amanda Monroe, and I'm a former D5-er, um, new health department. Um, and I am a special staff assistant over in the uh, COPE division, um, which is the Community Outreach Prevention and Education um, Division that Erica oversees. And um, I've been helping out with the mobile um, 
as I mentioned, as well as some other of the, um, the Cope Division projects, including the MC3 um, work that um, Jess had hit on. But thank you. And I didn't even know that you all were near or that Erica oversaw the departments. I just literally was like, I work with each one of them at the pop-ups. And so I want, I want to talk to them all. So yay, that's great. And I didn't even do that on purpose. Um, so can one of you speak to what, how the pop-up, like the whole concept was created and how pop-up sites are selected? Erica, so do you want to jump in? Sure. So I can start about the whole concept of the pop-up. So we've been doing pop-up uh, mobile health clinics since I've worked here um, in the health department, just focusing on different um, diseases um, and what we needed to take out into the community. So early on in the pandemic, you know, we were setting up COVID-19 testing sites throughout Tucson, and we recognized that we really didn't have them um, based logistically um, easily accessible for all, all of the communities. And so myself in collaboration with the IRC actually wrote a grant called Mitigating COVID in Communities of Color um, to focus on um, making COVID-19 testing more accessible in our community and using the CHW model um, to educate and take those services out. So Adelita, you're you're muted, so I can't Erica, hear you. Erica, you're gonna have to break down your acronym. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. I so know, I know. You all right. are nodding along. I'm like, I don't know what all of those acronyms are. So CHW, of course, is a community health worker, and here in Tucson, we know them as mensajeras, our promotoras, um, education. Um, term might be a lay health educator, and so we use that model along with. Um, this mobile clinic to, to start the testing in the community. So when we started doing vaccine rollout, we started pulling data and we were able to see that, you know, who was getting the vaccine. And it was not necessarily those that are most disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, right? And so then we thought, why not use the MC cube, which is mitigating COVID in communities of color, that model um, to do this with uh, mobile vaccination. And so I'm going to let um, my colleague Jess describe how we choose those sites now. Yeah, thank you, Jess, because that's a really big issue. People see them pop up in other neighborhoods and want to know, well, why don't you have one in mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that there's a lot. Everyone wants a vaccine right now, right? Um, and a huge issue is we don't have enough supply of it. So we're really trying to prioritize people who can't otherwise get to vaccine sites like at TMC or at Banner. So we use a lot of data to help us figure out where we want to go. And one really important piece of that is something that's called the social vulnerability index. And this is a measure that the CDC, its best practices in public health um, that we use to look at who would be most vulnerable and won't be able to likely get to a vaccine site. So that um, looks at everything from overcrowded housing to access to transportation such as someone's own private car, looks at income, looks at people with disabilities, it looks at race and ethnicity and language spoken at home. And that's a, that measure is put all together and then um, we look at data based by neighborhoods um, about who has the most, the highest social vulnerability. So that's one factor that we look at. And then another, other factors that we look at right now um, for folks who are eligible for the vaccine, it's largely those who are 65 and older we also know that healthcare workers, teachers, childcare workers, protective service are also eligible. But a huge category that can't access a vaccine right now are those that are 65 and older. So we also look at the percent in, the, in that neighborhood of who's 65 and older. And then we use other things like COVID cases, COVID deaths in that area, and the vaccine uptake. And we try to keep those numbers as up-to-date as possible so that we're picking sites that really are focused on people who haven't been able to get the vaccine, haven't, um, and have high COVID cases, and then also really high social vulnerability. Yeah, Amanda, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No, I just summed it up perfectly um, of what we're using. Yeah, I do think that um, some of the issues in people obtaining a vaccine are that, you know, they don't have a computer, they don't have the, um, 
internet capacity. The, the wait on the phone is a really long time. And so uh, when you're looking at different areas and where these pop-ups are, they've been incredibly successful um, in those neighborhoods, especially when you compare them to how our bigger pods are doing. While we're vaccinating a lot of people, I, what the total number is 317,000 people have at least had one shot. And then when you look at both, it's about 19% of total of people that have been vaccinated in Pima County. So I think we're doing pretty well. Um, at our last Board of Supervisors meeting, Mr. Huckleberry said that the, um, the plan that they'd created to really accelerate distribution of vaccines was hitting 300,000 at the end of March. So here we are at first week of March and we've already hit that goal, which I think is great. Um, but we still have people that clearly qualify, some that we hear from our office that are over 75 that can't get a vaccine. What can we tell people? What would you like us to let, To where, where should we direct people when they have concerns and haven't been able to get a vaccine? Well, we have a really handy number that people can call if they need assistance in signing up. And that number is 520-222-0119. And folks will speak Spanish on that line. It's open Monday through Sunday. So all days of the week, people can call that and someone can assist in signing them up. And otherwise, mobile vaccines, we're trying to target those really locally because we want to make sure that that immediate neighborhood who we've seen in the data really can't get the vaccine would. Um, so if you end up living in one of those neighborhoods, you'll likely hear about it through a school or a church or some community organization in that local area. Um, one of the things that, I mean, I was just so very impressed with everyone working together. So can you talk a little bit about who is coordinating the pop-ups with Pima County? How are those happening? Erica? Sure. So we have an internal team of different folks from throughout the health department, in addition to um, our healthcare providers. So that could be TMC or it could be Premier Medical Group. I think we're gonna start working with IOR Health um, to assist and then the actual location. And so that would be the church or the um, CBO, which is community-based organization um, that we are hosting the site. So it's a, it's a big team approach. Um, usually we've been throwing these up within a week. And so they, it moves fast, right? Because data moves fast. And <clears throat> I like to say it's a sprint, not a, a marathon, but um, <laughs> At the long term, it would be a marathon, but we're sprinting, you know, it's not an 800, it's a 100 millimeter dash, right? Mm -hmm. So we, all of us um, work together to get the site set up. And so it's just a big team approach. Yeah. Um, so what is something that many people don't know about the vaccine rollout and like the general functions of the larger scale COVID response versus what we're trying to do, what's trying to be accomplished by these pop-ups. Because the problem I think as people see it is that we have a lot of different, um, I have a friend who was saying, I'm waiting in line. Like I'm waiting my turn, I'm waiting in line. And what I keep saying is the line is very different <laughs> depending on where you're going. While in theory, we're all supposed to be in Arizona serving the same community. Um, one of my friends went up to Glendale in order to volunteer to get the vaccine and she said that she hadn't seen that many sports cars and out-of-state license plates in um, in her, like, unless she was at a car show. <laughs> like, it was very fancy, like Mercedes and a lot of very young, like, and, you know, she was, she was uh, generalizing as, like, college-age students. So, but if you look at um, the state pod numbers, they really do line up with what she was able to observe that you're not really getting a representation of the community at large. And so um, with these pop-ups, we are targeting specific areas. Can you talk about where we've had pop-ups thus far and the number of people that have been able to get vaccinated there? Amanda, do you want to talk about the pop-ups that you, you've worked at? So I can speak on what I've worked on um, because, like Erica says, it's a big team approach. So um, we have a lot of folks kind of 
us at, um, who have worked on these, but the ones I can speak to that I've worked on um, personally or been at are the ones that were in the city of South Tucson with Greyhound um, and the South Tucson Housing Authority. Um, and those were um, pretty successful events, right? Two different events. One was we were focusing on the senior housing, um, the South Tucson Housing Authority, bringing vaccines to the area because of, you know, what the issues in, that just mentioned above is like those barriers that can include internet or phone and bringing those no appointment um, shots to folks with those really strong community partnerships like we had with um, former Supervisor Villegas, who now is with the South Tucson Housing Authority and then having a great partner like the city of South Tucson to help with Greyhound really helped keep those community, um, community centered and community based approaches that were always aiming for public health by really focusing on the target population and really thinking about ways to do in-reach, right? Um, not always outreach, but that in-reach to make sure that that target population that we know, like you were saying, like in Glendale, like it's not really representative of what's happening or what we, who we know our community, what our community looks like. And so these in-reach approaches are making sure we're getting more of our community um, vaccinated who may, um, you know, not be having the easiest time to access the vaccine. And how many people were served at the South Tucson um, the housing? So I don't have the exact number, but it was, um, we, I think it was somewhere around the ballpark. We probably served about 60 to 70 people. Um, so it wasn't a large scale event at all. It was that approach. It's targeted, like it really was targeted to folks within that community. Um, and obviously, folks may know the bigger pop-ups that they've, um, they've heard about um, that um, are still targeted, but that was a very, like, I would say a micro approach to a more targeted approach. But I was so glad to see that because I do think that that is a community that wouldn't have the resources any other way to be able to protect themselves. And they're, you're relying on other people to come in. And one of the things that has been really frustrating about this process and how people have been identified is that you have older, the older populations because of the negative impacts of COVID being so, um, it's more people are dying that are older after they get COVID because they're bought for whatever, you know, immunities and all of these other issues that play into it. But the people that are coming into help them to buy groceries, to do all those other things, they might not yet be qualifying. And so that is one of the things that is really difficult. Um, some of the essential workers that are supporting our older population still aren't eligible. And so the, pro the process isn't perfect, but I do think that um, specifically these pop-up sites are really trying to target and micro-target some populations that wouldn't be able to get served otherwise. And so, um, I just felt so gratified to see so many people that I know that were like, I've been trying every day, sweetie, to get that on that. I can't figure it out. I'm like, I'm so glad to see you. So Jess, did you want to talk about some of the pop-ups that you've um, been a part of? Sure. And I know you've done quite a few of them too. So that's been exciting. But we've been to St. John's um, Catholic Church, which was on 12th and Ajo. Um, that site, we saw a lot of folks who spoke um, languages other than English. And so that's also another barrier that a lot of community members are facing. We know in Tucson, we have a really high population of people who speak Spanish. Um, and unfortunately, given the registration process right now, a lot of it is all in English. So that was really exciting to make sure that we had enough staff and everyone who was available at that vaccine site who could speak Spanish as well. Um, we also did an event out at Christ Community Church that was 22nd and Pantano. And that area we found that there's a lot of older folks who've been really struggling with being able to get online to make the vaccine, don't have internet access, um, can't sign up via email, etc. We also did a, uh, an event at Rising Star Baptist Church, which is a historically black church um, on the south side of Tucson. Um, and that was a really large event. So that was really exciting too. And then we're going ahead full steam with other events that are coming up too. Yeah. Um, Erica, did we miss, did we forget any? Because those yeah. are the ones I went to. <laughs> um, 
we did Florian with Catalina um, this there past weekend. But I do want to I do want to say something with the pop ups, is that while we are doing these, you know, mobile vaccine clinics, we really, really, um, this is where my team comes in is that we want to make sure that we're taking an equitable approach and making sure that all the services are done culturally and linguistically appropriate for the communities that we're serving. Um, it's, it's difficult to throw, you know, to stand up one of these. But what's really important is that we have targeted messages and messengers that represent the communities that we're out serving. So it's more than just having the actual vaccination available, but it's having, um, you know, appropriate um, linguistical and cultural cultural support for those that are arriving um, to the site for the vaccine. And so that's one thing that we really um, want to keep in mind when we do um, plan these events. Yeah, what I really love, so St. John's is the church that I had my first communion at. So it's literally around the corner from where my mom and dad live. And so it was really nice to see so many people that are like remembered me when I was little. I was like, oh, thanks. And then, you know, to talk to um, Father or Monsignor Truviso, who basically um, talked about the importance of having events like this and how happy the church was to get involved and be able to share the um, the notice of it. Because one of the the barriers that I think happen is um, I was I was being interviewed and he was asking me, well, you know, if it's a multi-generational household and, you know, can't you just take the older person to the vaccine? I mean, schedule it and take it. And I'm like, I don't know what households you were raised in, but when my Nana was alive, she not only ran her own household, but all of our households. So really, if you're, if it's not your doctor telling you, and it's not your priest or, um, your your pastor telling you to do this and you don't have a lot of friends that have been able to get the vaccine so you can call up your comadre and say hey how did how was it tell me tell me the truth how was it you don't have a peer group that has been able to go through the process i think that it's that's been a real barrier because if i can't i mean you know it's about it's like everything else you know if you don't have enough of your of your peer group and friends that have been able to get the vaccine and understand what the effects might be. And all you do is see these real extreme cases of, um, it's rare, but people do get sick. Um, just like with COVID, you know, people do get sick. Some have a very mild case, some have a very um, serious reaction. And so when you're going through this and the difficulty of these processes and how to to let people know, how are you getting the word out? Because what I think has been like top secret is people will ask me, where's the pop-up this week? And I'm like, they haven't told me. <laughs> like, I don't know anything until like the Friday before, which is fine. I think that that's really me knowing is I'm not the target population. And so how are you getting um, the word out when these sites are selected? I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so that's actually really intentional. We're not, we're not really trying to put these up on social media. There's a big part about, yeah, we want to get as many people vaccinated as possible, but we also want to really look at who's getting vaccinated. You talked about this earlier a little bit, Supervisor Gijalba, that um, when you've seen different sites, you've seen people who have um, maybe different access to those sites than other people, right? Um, so we're really trying to make sure we're going out to communities who, again, won't otherwise maybe be able to get the vaccine if we're not out there with the pop-up. Um, and so, yeah, we are, we're really trying to um, do community engagement with um, community-based organizations that are in those local areas. So for holding at a church that might be going through the church channels, that'll be local elementary schools in that area, neighborhood associations, um, places like that, but we're really trying to look in that immediate area because we can see in that immediate area that people just can't get the vaccine like places like people in other places can. Jess, Jess, do you want to talk a little bit about the community health workers going out into the neighborhoods? Yeah, I think that's important too because you mentioned that earlier too, Erica. Um, so our community health workers also go out and knock door to door um, for people and are talking about eligibility and trying to encourage people who want to get the vaccine to go get it and giving them that information. Um, 
And something that Erica mentioned earlier, which was making sure that we have culturally and linguistically appropriate services. And that's really important because our community health workers between our whole staff speak 10 languages. And so they're out at the same sites working those sites too. And then they also have interpreter phones if people speak other languages that they don't speak um, or can sign. And so we are trying to make sure that we're really reaching people in the community who, again, might not be served at the main sites. Yeah. Um, I, because I have a wonderful group of friends that are also eager to volunteer, I get all these requests to volunteer, like I'll go door to door, I'll do, and, and, and I know we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so it's one of those balances where you don't really want a lot of volunteers coming in because you, you know, you want to worry, you're worried about their health and preoccupied, but some who are, um, teachers have actually are totally fully vaccinated. And is there any need for volunteers? Is there um, any like is there any way that you want us to maybe reach out to you if there's something that we can do? Um, how well how are you how are we recruiting or not recruiting or maybe keeping a list of potential volunteers? So I can speak to that. The the county health department has set up a, a whole system to recruit and um, retain volunteers. And I don't know the website, but Amanda, you might know the email um, that if someone's interested, they just email. And I think it's um, volunteer EOC at Pima.gov. And then um, I'm not sure if that's the actual right one, but Amanda will double check this for me. Um, then interest could be sit there and they're actually vetted and put into the queue um, to be scheduled to volunteer. Excellent. Because I did, I'm like, oh, I want to go next time. I'm like, I don't know. I think I pulled a string and I just called and said, can I volunteer? But um, specifically what I was very impressed with is usually when I go to events, um, there's only like one other person that speaks Spanish, especially like at the event like St. John's, I thought I'll be able to be very helpful because, you know, I'll be able to speak Spanish and maybe not everyone will. But what I was so impressed with is not only like the table, the, the people that are registering you when you first come, but then at at the site where the where you're actually getting the vaccine that you have, if the nurse or the person administering the vaccine doesn't speak Spanish, somebody else there did. And I that was just so impressive to me because, um, you know, as a granddaughter of monolingual Spanish speaking grandparents, that was always our job. You just you just did it. And even though my Nana has is, is a citizen and lived here her whole life, she never wanted to learn how to speak English. I knew that she knew everything we were saying, though, because we'd say stuff and then you'd hear it back later. So I knew she understood everything. But, you know, those barriers are real. And um, and for for there to be such a targeted effort to try to overcome some of those bar barriers is why I really thought you can you it was great to um to have that to have that opportunity and it is it's EOC volunteer at pima.gov and so we are going to go ahead and add that into this and make sure we have that information out there um there were a couple other questions people just keep asking questions which i think is nice and one of them was how is the Johnson and Johnson vaccine going to impact the rollout here in Pima County? And have we had any? Do we have? I know we do, but you guys can speak to that um, about how many Johnson and Johnson vaccines have we been able to have? How how are those who are those being targeted to and um, what might happen with more supply of Johnson and Johnson specifically? And why are people excited about Johnson and Johnson? Anybody. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is very exciting, actually, um, especially if you're a public health nerd like me, but um, very exciting because right now the vaccines that we have out are two doses, Moderna and Pfizer. You have to get both of them in order to have the most protection you can against COVID, right? Um, Johnson & Johnson, you only need one. So the difference is that we use Moderna vaccines out on the mobile sites right now because um, they don't have the same freezing requirements as you would have for a Pfizer one. The Johnson, both Moderna and Johnson and Johnson will work great for mobiles. Um, what we're really trying to target with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is thinking about who won't be able to come back for a second dose. 
Um, so we're, we're really trying to think about who can we give the most coverage to with that Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, if you can only get one vaccine. So yeah. this might so be- who, who would that be? Might be people experiencing homelessness. Maybe it's people who are moving migrants. Um, it could be people who maybe are homebound and can't um, get out to a clinic for a sec or out to the TMC or Banner Pod for their second vaccine, someone like that. So we're really trying to focus on that first. And how many do, so how do we know how many vaccines we're getting? Like it seems to change every week. <laughs> right, and, that's it, right? and nobody knows. Okay. I just, you know, um, I was actually on, we were on a, in a board meeting and Mr. Huckleberry was talking about how we were going to have to cut back on vaccine distribution because we were getting cut 5,000, 6,000, depending on the week it changes. And then all of a sudden it was, I guess it, sort of like a bank account for, for counties, all of a sudden we had 4,500 4, more vaccines in our account. I'm like, wow, okay. I mean, I guess that's good news, but the problem is, is that same week pop-up sites were canceled because we weren't gonna have enough of them. And so a lot of these pop-up sites are very dependent on vaccine supply. And it seems to me like the U of A pod that is, they have the capacity to, it seems to do more, are getting the lion's share of the vaccines right now. That, that, that yeah, I think Dr. Cullen is the one, well, I know Dr. Cullen is the one that allocates the vaccine for the, the, the mobile sites based on what the county gets. So um, I don't want to speak for her on, you know, how, right. how much, because I don't know. But um, that is why a lot of times, we really can't do even a lot of inreach with the mobile pods is because we don't know how much vaccine allocation we have. So we might find out like on a Tuesday that there's a thousand more doses and we need to use them by Saturday. So we're, you know, rushing to try to set up a, a mobile vaccine site. I will say that the U of A has been very generous <clears throat> and a shared vaccine allocated to them that did allow us to do some additional mobile vaccine sites. Yeah. And um, so when we have these opportunities, there's people that are qualified, like they are over 65, they work in a school environment. I mean, they, they meet all of the criteria, but sometimes um, they haven't been able to get the vaccine at the pop-ups. Can you talk a little bit as to why that happens? Because if you qualify, shouldn't you be able to qualify everywhere? So basically these pop-ups are targeted to the neighborhood in which they're held. So if you're driving down from Oro Valley to a site on South 6th, you more than likely we're not able to supply you with a vaccine that day because we are, it's really targeted to that community. Um, and we do that based on the criteria that just outlined earlier, um, based on need, um, you know, percent vaccinated. So it's really kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to keep this equitable, right? And we want to see an equitable uptake of vaccine. And if we're doing one in an area that has low uptake, but we're allowing people to come from an area with high uptake, it defeats the purpose. Mm -hmm. It really defeats the purpose of what we're doing. And so sometimes we do have to be a little strong and stern and say, we can't serve you today. Um, you know, it's just how it is. It really is. And I, and I totally agree with that. I actually agree with, especially in some of these areas that have so there's, there's so few of that community represented in the population that are getting vaccinated. And what to me was very telling is when they broke it up by different areas and you can see where people, neighborhoods that are, have been the least impacted by the effects of COVID are the highest, the, the percentage of population that are getting the highest numbers of vaccines. That to me is where I feel like I'm completely comfortable because in all of the, well, at least two of them, I was able to be the screener. And so as long as like you tell me the criteria and I'm happy to enforce it because to me it is true. It's like, if you live in that area, then I agree completely with it should be limited to that area. And which is why we're not advertising. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're not advertising. Um, 
Um, one of the questions is why is there so much health disparity among low income and communities of color? And this is so, there's so many reasons that we could probably all talk for a long time about it, but um, does anyone wanna take a first stab at answering that question? Well, I'll start and then Jess and Amanda can jump in. Jess and I just had this conversation this morning um, and I'll just say one word and then I'll let Jess go ahead. But to me, it's all stemmed from racism. Um, mm -hmm. Disparity is the baby, right? That's an outcome. And so racism is the root cause of those um, health disparities that we see. Jess, you wanna jump in? Sure, I completely agree with Erica, first of all. I think that that's the root in all and everything that I'm about to say too. Um, so the reason why we use that, that measure that I mentioned earlier, which is social vulnerability index, is because it looks at these factors, right? Overcrowded housing, transportation, race and ethnicity, language spoken at home. The root of those things underlying all of them is structural racism, but it's also things, you know, in income is part of it too. So all of these social factors that we've created through years of policy, um, which are based on structural racism, have created the conditions that were that are making COVID-19 so bad and are affecting certain communities way more with more cases and more deaths than in other communities. And so this was an issue before COVID, but COVID has certainly shown us that um, has, has certainly shown this to a larger extent too. Amanda, you can jump in with anything else too. I mean, 100% yes to everything. And the only thing I would add too is I think a lot of what we say in public health is we need to start looking upstream. And really what that comes down to is we need to really, like Jess was saying, look at these policies. What got us here? What is, like, why does this keep happening? decade after decade, century after century. And I think it really comes back to like, you have to really look at the lens in which these policies were created and enforced. And how can we look further upstream? So we're not just putting these band-aids on, right? So we're not just pulling someone out of the water when they're drowning, but we really need to see why are they in the water drowning in the first place? And what are the policies and structures that led to that? And how can we start amending those and start applying these lenses of equity, right, to make sure that when we find ourselves in a situation like the COVID-19 pandemic, we're already operating with more of a lens of equity at the forefront to make sure we aren't going to see these disparities. And we're taking the opportunity to right now to learn these lessons and make sure that we're taking that hard look through that policy lens as well. Um, and I do think that there, there's so much um, with like, housing, with neighborhoods that have historically been limited to only people of color. I mean, those coincidentally are the neighborhoods that I've always lived in. So I never thought that it was odd until I got older and you start to drive around different communities. You're like, wait a minute. I don't see any children in this neighborhood that look like me. And then when I, as a school board member, you go to visit schools and you're like, it's, I mean, there, there are so many places where you can see it. And what has been very um, frustrating to me is if you're not looking at it at through the lens of, for, to look for those disparities, it's really easy to say, well, it's not about, um, it's about equal access. It's about, you know, it's not about an equity issue. It's like everyone gets the same. Like, but that's not true because not everyone starts at the same place for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, what I heard a lot is people trying to justify why certain areas in town were impacted harder by COVID than other areas. Did any, I, I have my whole list of reasons, but I wanted to hear from each of you about some um, some of those things that could be impacted by changes in policy and practice that we, we need to work on as a community, a state, and a country. Those are bigger questions, but. Um. Well, we know that where there are the highest cases of, of COVID, um, particularly around December and January, 
Um, we're also communities that have been the brunt of structural racism um, going on for years, um, environmental ra environmental racism, um, mm -hmm. and are also the same areas that maps show that have lower access to transportation, which is a policy. Um, that's something that we can be working on moving forward. Where does the bus go? How often does the bus go there? Um, housing. How, how high is the quality of housing? Um, are, how, how is it built structurally? Where are the hottest areas in town? Um, how are they resilient? We know here in Tucson, right, we really need to think about in the summer. So which areas have the higher highest resiliency to the heat in the summer? And we can see that the same areas that were um, faring worse in these regards in terms of, you know, hotter in the summer, structural racism, um, environmental racism, lower access to transportation were the same areas that we had the highest cases of COVID. Mm. So it's all related, unfortunately. And I'll jump in just, you know, while we see that there's high rates of COVID, those exact same communities are gonna have high rates of heart disease, diabetes, um, all, all sorts of chronic diseases. So it's not just, um, you know, singled out to COVID like, oh no, COVID's just hitting communities of color. This has been happening. So yeah, COVID's the flavor of the month, right? Um, but we know that communities of color um, show high rates of all diseases. Um, and based on what Jess was saying, those are some of the reasons um, that we see that, that such high rates of disease in communities of color. Um, some systemic um, changes um, that we can do with policy is making sure that communities have good infrastructure so that there's good lighting. We have sidewalks available, right? Um, we don't have Circle K's on every corner, but we have nice food markets where people can obtain food within the neighborhood. There's a lot of small things that can happen within neighborhoods that can make a huge difference. And that's one of the things that we've been focusing on with another grant um, that focused on racial and ethnic approaches to, to community health but it is about policy and systems changes so that we're seeing healthier outcomes, um, not just in select communities, but in all communities. Yeah, I think what, um, what was most telling to me is when everything shut down and you really started to understand the, one of the things that I see this pandemic having done is really putting a spotlight on just the disparities in general and how now that we like literally cannot have a blinder on like you have to see it all and and we have to do something about it to to have students in with you know we have 44,000 students in Tucson Unified and over half of them did not have a computer and 40% didn't have internet and so you know, there's certain areas of town that just don't have it at all. <laughs> and and how are we going to continue to address that issue? Um, you know, one of the biggest issues when schools closed, the first thing we heard about is how are our kids going to eat? Those are real issues that we had to come up and create a bus system to deliver food in our district because our children weren't going to eat otherwise. Those are significant issues that were always there. They're always there, but you don't appreciate how much they rely on those services. And talking to people in the library, it's like we had to start giving out food because they were coming hungry. So we had to come up with a we had to come up with a plan to figure out how to do it. And so uh, you saying like COVID is the flavor of the month, it's true because all of these other issues were always there. They were always there. Um, one of the, how can, is there a way for us as as community members, if we know, if we're looking at the same data, um, to suggest a site or to offer a site, if there's, you know, a church that wants to be able to support, is there a way for them to get, and who would they get in contact with? Well, I love that. Um, we are always trying to engage the community the, in more ways, um, especially when it comes to these mobile vaccines. So um, we are starting a community engagement group at the county. Um, and so we would love um, community members to join that. We don't have specific details about how you can join yet, but if you keep that on your radar, I'm sure 
Supervisor Grupalba, that you can maybe do a little shout out for us. In the I, 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 I would be happy to. But <laughs> what is the criteria for what you need? So you don't get like, feel free to use, you know, I mean, what size, what kind of space do you need in order for people to really give you lists of suggestions that would be usable spaces? For the, sure, for specifically sure. for these. And then as we get, as it's getting hotter, are we looking for um, capacity for drive up? Are we looking at more coming into buildings? It is getting warm out there. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you worked sites, so that's awesome. We've worked a couple okay. of um, Yeah, definitely. Those are all great considerations. So um, if we're turning down community member suggestions, it's not because we don't think that that's a great location. It's more so the logistical things that you're talking about. So places with big parking lots are always great, especially when we're thinking about drive-throughs or as the summer months are coming up to large indoor spaces, because we're really, we don't want people outside for a long um, period of time, especially when it starts getting over a hundred degrees um, in the summer. So those suggestions in particular, um, we have, Basically, for the layperson, if you want to go out and look at our um, COVID case map, um, and I can, I'll, I'll drop the link right now. Thank you. Um, the areas that we have higher cases are pretty much the same areas where we're trying to go with the vaccine. More or less, the data will show. So we're still trying to prioritize with that data. But any suggestions that you all have are welcome. Um, so I'll, I'll drop that right now. Um, Gina, she's so great. She she watches a lot of these platicas. And now on a Tuesday afternoon, I appreciate you, Gina. Um, said that the pharmacy program connected with is the pharmacy program connected with the Pima County Health Department because um, she's very happy to announce that Walgreens in South Tucson is now taking appointments for the vaccine, which is great because um, there was only like a CVS off of Valencia in our nearby area that was doing that. And it's another one of those opportunities for people because you trust your pharmacist. Like, so if they're giving the vaccine at the pharmacy, even though it's not your doctor, you might be more comfortable that way. But are those programs like CVS, Kroger's, are they connected at all with Pima County? No, they're their own individual sites. They get their own vaccine allocation. But what um, I know that Dr. Cullen has strived to do is that anyone that's not getting the allocation from us at least follow the guidelines set by the county. How I and I, but I think they're doing their own guidelines at the pharmacies. I'm not real sure about that, but it is not connected directly to the health department. Yeah, and that's kind of why I keep saying like everyone. I I appreciate you know this. You know, you want to make sure that people in you know 65 and older get the opportunity, but that there are um, there are a lot of different lines. There's a lot of different ways that people are accessing the vaccine. So if you have the opportunity, take the vaccine. <laughs> I mean, really, we want to make sure that more people are vaccinated, especially in these neighborhoods that have been just so hard hit there. Um, Amanda, I wanted to give you a shout out because while you were with Supervisor Viegas, a D fiber, um, you worked to have that declaration declaring racial inequities as public health crisis. And that policy is something that I've continued to ask about because I thought it was really significant. And one of the things that people haven't hadn't put hadn't connected before, but not only is it that we have this statement, it's like, so what are, we've adopted this and now what are we doing about it? And so um, thank you for doing all that work and, you know, make sure to poke at us if we're like, hey, we haven't heard about it in the last month, because I think it's important for us to continue. Um, so, so the numbers total, I had some numbers before, but it's, 316,000 people have had at least one dose. Um, what are some of the myths about getting the vaccine that we want to dispel? I mean, I don't have a MD background, but I wanted I wanted to make sure that you know, I've heard the craziest where the government is putting something in our in our arm and they're going to be able to track us. And I'm thinking, you really want to track me? Only home. <laughs> like, where am I going? So, what are some what are some things that we can sort of to to assure people of what the vaccine is and what it isn't? And I'm sure you guys have heard some doozies. 
Um, I can jump in again. We we did a little focus group with um, some of our community health workers to try to hear what they were hearing out in the community. Um, so we've, we've heard the, the microchip one in the arm. That isn't true. Um, yeah. We've also heard things that the vaccine will maybe give you certain diseases or something like that. Also not true. Um, but also we heard. But it's going to have some sort of effect on your DNA. That's happened before. Oral cause infertility, that's certainly another one too. Also all miss. Um, basically, when you get the vaccine, common side effects, your arm is going to maybe hurt for a little while. You might get a little redness in the area. And the side effects are a little bit different um, from, they're certainly different from COVID. So you would be feeling maybe a little achy and tired. Tiredness is the most common, but it shouldn't cause anything like shortness of breath or anything like that. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, that having a sore arm for a couple of days is definitely better than um, not knowing. Cause you know, when you have COVID, you have no idea how it's going to affect you and how it's going to affect your family. What has been so striking to me with, with COVID is in one household with everyone having the same exposure, how the impact to everybody is so different. There isn't just like a, yes, we all got flu-like symptoms. No, some of you get COVID fingers and lose your sense of taste and can't really, and, you know, have this horrible runny nose where another person, it has shakes like fever and chills for six days. I mean, it just, it varies so differently from person to person. And um, it is very scary because of that, just the uncertainty of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, the great thing about the vaccine, people are always thinking about how you won't get COVID, but what's really the most, I think the most beautiful part about the all the vaccines that are out right now is they're really effective at preventing people from going to the hospital or getting severe COVID. And that's what we want to prevent. Sure, it's really uncomfortable to be sick. We don't want that to keep happening. And the chances are really low after you get the vaccine that you get COVID. But what we really want is to keep people out of hospitals and to keep people from dying from COVID or any severe kind of illness from it. Yeah. Have you heard, I know that we have the age and the the, limp, the youngest that someone can get the vaccine is 18. Have you heard anything about students? Because as we're going back to school, one of the things we keep hearing, well, all of the adults might be vaccinated. Those who want to have access to the vaccine, but children don't. And I, I know that there've been some, that they're doing some studies with younger, but have we heard anything else about that? I don't think we have. I know there there's another vaccine that they're looking at um, developing that would be um, suitable to use in, in children. That's the most I've heard so far. Um, the ones that we do have emergency approval for use, as you know, is just 18 and up at this point. Yeah. So if you're a student and you're 18, you can get it. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, I know that especially for some of our younger um, elementary students, especially for those households that are multi-generational, while the child, you know, statistically may not have really long lasting or really severe, I shouldn't say long lasting, but severe effects of, of when catching covid you can bring it home. Right. And that, that's why it's so important that we continue to follow the other mitigation um, criteria, such as wearing a mask, you know, sanitizing the social distancing and, you know, getting tested for COVID. Just because the vaccine is out doesn't mean that COVID testing goes away. That is how, that is one of the main data sets that we have that are, that we've been using to drive us to deliver vaccine is percent positive of COVID um, testing. So that's a really important to mention. So um, vaccine does not mean no more COVID testing and the other mitigation factors. We need to continue to do them all. So you guys are getting a lot of love um, on Facebook. We have a shout out for Jess and Amanda for all their work. Artemisa Lopez says, thank you for the information. I've been so concerned about vaccine access. And Valerie Sanchez is saying, thanks to each of you for your leadership, our community needs and is benefiting from it. That's really nice. Um, what We did have a question about what is herd immunity? 
Jess, you want to take that one? I was going to say Amanda can jump in too because I feel like I've been talking so much. Uh, yeah, Amanda. Whoever. Let's have Amanda do that one. I can hop into it. Yeah, so um, herd immunity really is what we need to reach to the point where, like, the virus likes the body. And so what we're trying to do is keep it from finding someone to infect. And that's really what we're getting with herd immunity is that to the point where it's bouncing around and it can't find someone to infect because so many people are protected. And um, there's different percentages. Right now, I think what I've been hearing was a 70% vaccinated to reach that immunity. Okay. Um, and really what it comes to is, like Erica's saying, before we reach that level, we need to be super good still about wearing our mask, washing our hands, keeping our distance, because you never know if the person you're near has been vaccinated yet, right? And so we still really need to have that um that mindset of like those really good habits we built up over the last year. And um, that herd immunity really just getting to, the virus just has nowhere else to go. So it kind of dissipates. Um, and so um, that's why the mask is so important. So if you don't have, if you're not fully vaccinated, right? Because when you're in between shots, like you're not fully vaccinated at that point, um, right? And it still takes some time for your body to build up that immunity after fully being fully vaccinated. So I think there's just a lot of um, things at play that we just really need to keep up that is like, we're also excited we have this vaccine and J&J, &J, I think is everyone's like, most like excited thing to talk about this month. But that I think we can't stop talking about the importance of masks. And the CDC has um, released two recently, the double masking or the tight fit masking to really keep ourselves protected, especially when we have some variants that are around so um, there are ways to slow spread that just don't involve vaccine, and we need to keep practicing those. You know, the three W's, which is um, wear your mask, wash your hands, wait, give space, or like Dr. Cole likes to do her wingspan. And I know Jess and I have been at the sites doing this little <laughs> dance to keep people separate. But I think that's the thing. It's like herd immunity is we want to reach it, but there are also these practices we need to be. Uh, yeah. yeah. So Go ahead. Real quick, the easiest way to remember what Amanda just said is the more people that are immune to something, they're less li it's less likely for those that don't have immunity to get it. And so yeah. there's always going to be somebody who's unable to get a vaccine for some reason or, um, you know, health reasons or something. So the more people that we can that become immune to COVID, the less likely for those unvaccinated folks to get it. And that's with any kind of disease that's um, communicable. I think what I'm going to do is when we're talking to people who are eligible and are opting not to, um, you know, we we saw it at some of the pop-ups with spouses. They'll come together and one is getting it, but the other one's like, no, no, I just stay home. I think what I'm going to do is harp on that. Like, do you want to protect your children because they can't get the vaccine, but That's you true. can. Um, and so as we're coming up to spring break, um, you know, I think that you've touched on, you know, you still have to continue to practice everything that we've been doing. I know it's tiring. I, everyone is tired. It's not, I mean, I have like 40 masks and I look at them and go, uh, but it's important because we have to protect each other. And we don't, this, this is so, COVID is so contagious and the variants are very scary. And so when you're talking, you, I shouldn't be able to see your nose or your chin. If it moves, that's not tight enough. It has to like really cover, like lift like right here. And I think that just reminding people of that is, is just something that we're going to have to keep doing for a long time because now that restaurants are reopening and don't really have, it's kind of loose criteria on that. We have gyms that are opening. We have schools that are opening. People can easily trick themselves into thinking that everything is okay now because those things are there. And um, we just have to continue to, to stay safe. And so we literally have a minute. I know I told you it would go by really fast. I just want to say again, what a pleasure it was to work um, and volunteer alongside you all. And I hope to see you soon at some other events. And I want to personally thank you for all of your hard work, because I know it is hard work. And, um, and sometimes isn't you know, it feels like you get beat up a lot because like, well, why not here? And why not this? And what aren't you doing? But I just wanted to say how much 
your work is really appreciated and valued. And for those communities that you're representing, um, it's it's just priceless. So thank you all for taking time, an hour out of your very busy lives to um, just talk to the community about what it is that you're doing. Um, thanks again. Thank Stay you. safe, my friends. Thank, thank you. you.